Welcome to the C Word, the Conservators podcast. Today we're talking about looking after your conservator. I'm Jenny Mathiason, an objects conservator based in South Yorkshire. And I'm Chloe Ramsey, an objects conservator based in Greater Manchester. Right, and today we are joined by special co-host Lorraine Finch. Lorraine, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, I'm an archives conservator. I specialise in the conservation and preservation of photographic materials, and I'm based in Norfolk. Excellent. Welcome. We're so glad to have you. Thank you. <laughs> glad to be here. Excellent. I follow you on Twitter, so I see all the magical <laughs> things you do. <laughs> I do a lot of Twitter stalking because I really like the stuff that yeah. you put on Twitter. So just everyone, you can actually follow Lorraine on Twitter. Surprise. Um, I'm doing it now. Actually. <laughs> just, just. My Twitter is at conserve underscore LFCP. If anybody would like to follow me. Brilliant. At Go and follow her. Just saying. Um, Does anyone have any news? I have some news that I just read. Oh, excellent. Yes. What is it? Um, so uh, it's it's actually about one of the main stresses in the lives of conservators. Clothes, moths. Oh, Done. Done. Yes. The bane of my existence. Yes, indeed. Um, An article in The Guardian recently has described the results of a study um, by English Heritage that some of us will probably be familiar with Mm -hmm. um, and involved with because it's involved quite a lot of different sites. It describes the rise in clothes moths in the last few years and also the danger areas in the country and what to look out for, what to be aware of. Uh, It won't be a surprise to us that uh, it's mainly pre-1950s houses and buildings that are worth the worst culprits with all their floor cavities and mm. you know dust traps and things like that but i was surprised to read that the east midlands in general is by far the least affected by clothes moth so oh, um wow. if you're there you're probably all right <laughs> wow lucky people uh, and if you're not then tough <laughs> <laughs> Then get loads of pheromone traps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, and as we are not in the East Midlands, um, I'm getting pheromone traps. Oh yeah, I've got loads. There was a lady on Radio Four talking um, from English Heritage, and she was talking about the hundred percent increase in clothes moths in the last five years, and she was talking <gasps> oh. about her her book called pests in houses large and small oh wow oh excellent i'm gonna to have to look into that bro i didn't hear that one actually no, yeah, that's, that's amazing scary. 100 oh god <laughs> fun times okay <laughs> probably enough about moths there oh yes i was gonna say that our, our episode today i feel like it's quite timely because the museums association just had a whole feature on uh, well-being in museums actually i was pleased to see that one of the articles was actually about the well-being of staff and volunteers oh that's good because obviously it's really trendy to think of well-being as a theme for audiences in museums and the the positive effects of engaging with art and culture but i feel like something that gets sidelined quite a lot is actually how we should look after our staff and our volunteers. So there was actually an article on that. About, I'll bring a link to that in. Um, I think you have to be a member to read it, though, which is a little bit annoying. But the ba- basically, it was talking about, hey, we should look after our staff. <laughs> yes, yes, we should. <laughs> and it, it had some alarming statistics in it, like 40% of like the museum workforce somewhere was like at risk of you know developing anxiety or oh. depression and stuff like that, right? So, you know, it was... It, it was basically backing it up with data and saying that mm, we should take better care of ourselves. And that's kind of where I wanted to go with this whole thing today, actually. So let's just start with how are we all around the table today? How are we feeling? Lorraine, how are you today? I was feeling excellent being out for a run this morning and it's oh, bright and sunny outside. So lovely. <laughs> it's a oh good day. God. Oh, that, that, that does sound so lovely. nice. How about you, Chloe? Uh, 
I'm I'm okay. I'm okay. I've yeah. just got a lot going on at the moment. I'm feeling quite tired today. Yeah. Uh, I feel like a million miles away from going for a run in the morning in the sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I'm buying a house at the moment, which is one of the things that everyone gets stressed about. And I feel like I'm not, I'm not giving... It is, it is yeah. a famously huge yeah. source of stress. It is. So I'm not giving myself enough kind of kudos for not being totally broken down about that. Yeah. But yeah, I've just, there's just, mm-hmm. very, there's exhibitions, there's no yeah. time for them. Yeah. There's a million objects, <laughs> there's no time for them. Yeah. <laughs> It's yeah. all right. I think if I wasn't tired, I'd be better yeah. about it. Yeah. yeah. How about you? How are you feeling, Jenny? I'm quite frazzled. I mean, I'm a little bit like physically worn out as well uh, because I've done stupid things and injured myself. Oh, no. Um, but oh. these things happen, right? I'm not very prone to injury, so I'm quite pleased about that. So, you know, <laughs> it's, it's kind of a one-off occasion. But yeah, no, I, I feel quite frazzled. I feel like I, I need this episode. I feel yeah. like I need this episode, actually. So if you're out there and you're feeling a bit tired, maybe you need this episode as well. And that's okay. Basically, I've entitled this one Looking After Your Conservator. Uh, so it can be about us looking after ourselves. And it can be about how people around us can help us look after ourselves. It's going to be a little bit of well-being, a little bit of self-care. Yeah. And I thought I might start by trying to define some of those things. Because they're all, they're all current buzzwords, aren't they? They just kind of get bandied around a lot and nobody really explains them. So I should probably say that this isn't really a health and safety episode. It's not that kind of looking after ourselves. Because I feel like health and safety, that's legislated. And we're quite up on that sort of thing. Like we're quite good, of, good at thinking about, I need to wear my gloves, there's workplace exposure limits. Uh, I have risk assessments and cost assessments for all of my chemicals. And then once it gets to territory beyond that, I feel like we might not be as good as a workforce at recognizing that there's more to health than just the health and safety aspect and what chemicals we work with. So I'm going to read out a definition of mental well-being uh, that I've gotten from Mind, which is one of the charities in the UK dealing with people's uh, mental health and uh, wellness, basically. Mental well-being describes your mental state. It's how you're feeling and how well you can cope with day-to-day life. If you've got good mental well-being, you're able to feel relatively confident in yourself and have positive self-esteem, feel and express a range of emotions, build and maintain good relationships with others, feel engaged with the world around you, live and work productively, cope with stresses of daily life, adapt and manage in times of change and uncertainty. So it's basically just being able to cope, right? It's um, that's that's their definition of what good mental well-being is. And so It's not the same as having trouble with your mental health, but it can contribute. And then self-care, and I've stolen this one from the NHS. Self-care is about keeping fit and staying well, however you define well, understanding how you can look after yourself and when to seek professional help. And if you have a long-term condition, uh, it's also about understanding how that condition affects you and how you can live with it. Um, So all of these things kind of, they're separate, but they tie together. And I think we're going to touch a little bit, bit on all of them today ideally and yeah so i guess we can start with like a big question which is like what, what's well-being to you do you think that's kind of a big question <laughs> as i say it is a very big question and i was thinking about this prior to the episode about what well-being actually is and i think it's different for every person yeah so you have your own personal definition of well-being 
And for me, it's not about being in a state of constant happiness because no. that's unrealistic. Mm. It's about having the ability to cope and the resilience and having that general day-to-day contentment. But knowing that if life uh, you know, serves you a curveball, which it does, that you have the coping strategies to deal with that and the resilience to be able to deal with that also. And obviously, that then contributes to your well-being. It helps you feel well in yourself and that then as you've been saying impacts on your self-esteem and your self-confidence because the worst thing in the world is for a problem to come along you can't cope then your self-esteem disappears your self-confidence disappears and then you're on a downward spiral yeah no exactly and I, I know that I've definitely been in that situation where that where something can impact me catastrophically and that's you know a, a real red flag that means that oh I've not I've not looked after myself recently because like this isn't that big a deal or it shouldn't be this big a deal so uh, there are certainly warning signs of that sort of thing yeah i certainly had that last week when i lost my internet for three days oh God, I hate um, that. And, <laughs> and then um the replacement that was sent was lost by or misplaced i should say by royal mail and then uh, just stuck in this circle between bt and royal mail trying to get it sorted that's a nightmare for anyone (laughs) it shouldn't have been that important you know it's internet it's a first world problem um but it really really got to me and made me really stressed and i just thought you know this is a sign that there's a lot more going on in my head than i'm actually Mm. giving credit to and i need to be aware of this and i need to um sit back and just think about why this is happening why i've as far as I'm concerned, overreacted to this whole situation. Yeah. So you do, you get things like that that happen that really in, in the normal course of events wouldn't upset you, mm. but suddenly they really do. Yeah. It's funny that you say that because recently uh, my smartphone broke. I, I didn't have a replacement lined up and I've been looking at alternatives and stuff like that because money's tight. And it really distressed me not being able to constantly check my emails or constantly mm. check on social media. It stressed me out to a really interesting degree. And I feel much calmer about it now. And I, I was especially, I was especially freaked out because I was going to uh, this training thing in London, and the idea of leaving the house without any way of communicating mm. with my outside world, mm. and then not being able to constantly check Google Maps, freaked me out like nothing else. As it turns out, it was all fine. You know, all good. It was, it worked out. It really highlights to me how dependent I've become on my phone and constantly being available to people. It's been. So stressful but more stressful than it needs to be so yeah I've, I've taken this as kind of a detox opportunity where actually you know what maybe i don't need to check my emails every time i sit down and, and have a cup of coffee or tea or because it's really been my go-to thing as soon as i sit down and have a break from what i'm doing mm-hmm. i'm actually doing something else really vital <laughs> on my phone and it's like actually that's insane like why am i doing that to myself so yeah i've kind of regained a little bit of possibly balance or Mm -hmm. yeah because i've just sort of well what else could i be doing now or maybe i'll go and have a Mm -hmm. chat with a colleague or oh you know i just stand here and watch the birds at the bird feeder oh yes so it's just little things like that so for me i think well-being might be the ability to disconnect it's it's good for everybody but isn't that interesting because being able to contact people via your mobile phone and social media is good for your well-being because you have that sense of connection with others 
But on the other hand, that constant ability to connect with others is bad for your well-being because it actually stresses you when there's nobody there, stresses you when you can't do it and stops you from appreciating, like you say, the birds on the bird feeder. Mm, yeah. And actually, this came up. There was a couple of weeks ago, there was a museum hour, which was all about uh, well-being, actually. It was really well attended and really interesting to see. And something that someone did bring up was that maybe social media does help us to stay connected and helps us feel less lonely but at the same mm. time and i think this was especially brought up from an emerging professional's point of view but you always need to be seen you always need to be there you always need to be posting something you always need to be interested mm. or people forget that you exist and obviously that's a huge stress factor and it's one that we don't mm. necessarily recognize as harmful because we just think mm. it's natural now and actually no we shouldn't have to feel that pressure at all no you shouldn't in some ways it helps that i am slightly older mm. in that i remember the days pre-smartphone um <laughs> when you i just about when you, <laughs> when you used to get around without google maps i think being slightly older it helps in that I don't use my mobile phone so much mm. to um, stay in contact. And I have that memory of the days before they existed. Yeah. But even so, I find myself getting dragged in. And more and more so, I bought a smartphone last year. I had a mobile phone, but I bought a smartphone. I finally gave in. And I find myself more and more and more checking it, seeing if there's anybody there, checking my emails, looking at Facebook, posting on Twitter, doing all that sort of stuff and getting dragged in. And then trying to step back and thinking you don't need to do this yeah. you, you know like you say about people um needing to to feel that they have a presence constantly you don't need to do that the important thing is to know your own value and to value yourself yeah it's the expectation for an immediate response as well that yeah so it's so part of this that if I if I see I've got a message like I can see on my phone I've got I've got a whatsapp message and I've already (laughs) looked at it because I thought oh god maybe they want to know something right right now I do that too like oh it's a media response right oh they need to know now that's why they're messaging yeah yeah it's like calm down my my immediate thing was oh my god message what does it say okay and now the fact that there's the notification there is stressing me out so I'm just removing it and that's not I don't yeah does it help i don't know but then if i didn't have my phone i'd be constantly frightened that some emergency was happening and i couldn't do anything about no no it's 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 a weird thing because i do feel like i'm unreachable which is not true there are loads of ways that you can reach me it just won't be as immediate yeah it's the same thing with email isn't it though when you're at work you get an email about something at work and you feel you need to give it an immediate response which then takes you away from whatever bench work you're doing exhibition Mm. preparation or whatever you whatever piece of work that you're on and so you get stressed about that so that's another stress and I find that what I try to do about that is I set aside an hour a day where I'll do the emails and other than that I won't look at them that's a really good idea such a healthy attitude yeah that is really good actually I think it's easy to get caught up in other people's stress especially if the tone of an email is very tense like oh my god I need this I need to send this funding bid by 5 p.m and I need your elaborate response right now because I haven't planned ahead and I haven't thought to ask you before this exact moment in time please help what's well-being to you Chloe do you think what what helps you so I don't know I don't think that I'm particularly good at the well-being thing I think I'm I'm not either but you I feel like an awareness of the issues is the first step awareness of the need for well-being is the first step and I feel like I'm I'm getting there with that first step I'm I'm a person of quite high anxiety 
Um, I've never considered myself to have an anxiety problem. And I've realized in recent months that whatever is happening in my life, I always feel a little bit overwhelmed and like I can't cope. Mm -hmm. But I don't I don't know what the sort of it's not often all that much about work. Like at the moment, I've got a fantastic job. And obviously, this time or well, last year, over a year ago now, I suppose I, um, I was looking looking for a job and I was facing the end of a contract and that was what was making me feel overwhelmed mm. and like I couldn't cope and now I probably buying a house and it really <laughs> I don't really know so I, I think I've, I've, I've sort of I'm aware of anxiety issues I'm aware of where it comes from and what exas exacerbates it but I'm still at the stage of working out how to manage myself like a, a parent managing a child, really. I feel yeah, like that's that, what I'm doing. It, you know what? That, that is what self-care and well-being is about. Like yeah. you, you need to know, you need to get to know you and, you know, figure out what makes you tick in some ways and what what, what helps you. So it's kind of having that little dialogue with yourself. Like, is this make me, making me feel better or is this um, possibly making, making a problem worse? Or, yeah, because nobody can tell you what well-being is to you. Like we've already said, it's personal to everyone. So it's whatever works for you. For some people, it's like high intensity workout. Yeah, I feel really energized <laughs> afterwards. And like, that's, you know, a form of self-care for them. And then, you know, it might be reading a book in a hammock for someone else. You know, oh, that sounds nice. I'll have that one, please. <laughs> no, I did. I, I am, <laughs> I say I'm going to the gym. I haven't had time to go to the gym for like three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh, I know that feeling. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe, maybe that isn't helping. But when I was going to the gym, it was, I, I did feel like it was a good it was a good process because um, it takes you out of the house and it takes you away from what you're doing and you you can't look at your phone because you're supposed to be doing other things <laughs> yeah and it is something that you that make once you've done it you feel like you've done something good for yourself yeah but then reading in a hammock sounds glorious <laughs> well it can be both um <laughs> So I posted a kind of Twitter straw poll a while ago and I asked what could improve your workplace and day-to-day -day working environment in terms of well-being and I had four options because you can only have four on on Twitter polls. Uh, one was more tea breaks, another was coloring in during lunch, <laughs> another one was a spot of on-site yoga and a petting zoo on standby. And the winners mm. were definitely the petting zoo and the on-site <laughs> yoga. Yeah. They were the clear winners. And then 20% 20, 20 voted for more tea breaks and 5% said colouring in during lunch. And I, I just wanted I just wanted to put that out there, you know, that maybe there are tiny bits that you can't do. You probably can't get a petting zoo, but maybe, <laughs> but, but I mean, but some offices generally have, you know, a fish tank or something, right? So, which actually, and you might think that mm, fish, they don't do anything. <laughs> actually, that really helps just having another living thing that you can kind of observe and they just go about doing their own thing there's a reason they're in dentists you know waiting rooms because people are very anxious there but oh look fishy <laughs> makes it all slightly better i sometimes dog sit for my mum's dog um harry and oh. harry sometimes has to come along to meetings with me that and the change in the meetings is huge they're suddenly so much more relaxed and so much more gets done it's fabulous i mean i could thoroughly recommend having an animal around I mean for me particularly dogs because I'm a dog person but uh, it's fantastic and because I'm freelance and I go to quite a lot of other um, freelance studios quite a lot of them will have their dog in the office not necessarily in the studio but the dog will be in the office and it makes such a difference oh I imagine it does 
I'm mostly. I'm looking at my manager at work right now. <laughs> I'm looking at you, Jenny. <laughs> and I'm saying, hey, do you think maybe Ruby would like to come to the lab? I, I think she'd have a lovely day. Yeah. I'm saying, well, I think Harry, it would be lovely. Harry sometimes comes up into the studio and he just lays under the, the bench. Yeah. Just lays asleep, you know, and keeps my feet warm in the winter, which is fantastic. That's a good thing about a dog because a dog will stay put. I feel like a cat would be slightly obnoxious <laughs> in the lab, sleeping <laughs> on top of what you're trying to work work on you know pushing you things out an object and then the, you running away, away with the swabs <laughs> so, so maybe choose an animal that is suitable to your environment yeah yeah a dog with short legs yeah. a, a lot of conservators are lone workers yeah which is not good for your mental health so having a, a dog or a cat or whatever your animal of choice is is fantastic because there is company there i like that people chose yoga though that makes mm. me extremely happy mm-hmm. um i found that yoga works really well for me i've been really bad recently and not done yoga at all which has i can tell there's a difference in how mm-hmm. i'm feeling so mm. I, I need to pick that up again i need to say right um before i go to bed in the evening i will do some yoga uh, rather than answer all these emails that nobody really cares about. It's like, do that at some other point in your day, right? <laughs> because actually, I feel like yoga really helps me. Now, I do yoga on YouTube, so I found a YouTube channel that I like. I Because of where I live, it's not easy for me to get to a class. So unless we did something in work, which we're not currently doing, that means I can't actually get to anywhere safely that uh, would have a class so i just do it at home in front of the, the tv with youtube and that works really well so even if you think oh maybe it's not for me you could try it just with, with a youtube video just try no it yeah. to know yeah. no to see no you. exactly it could be just you there's nobody has to see your bum in the air do you do a long practice then basically how i tend to go for the videos that are like 30 to 40 minutes Mm. Uh, and then there was a time when I did it every night before bed and it really helped me because it just kind of plucked like Mm. like it unplugged something Mm -hmm. in my head and it was like well none of that stuff matters we're gonna we're gonna put that away and you can worry about it again in the morning if you really want to sometimes I feel like yeah we could probably get away with doing like five minute yoga stints in the office just because I have to take breaks and do my physical exercises because I had repetitive strain injury a couple of years ago so I step away anyway and do these physical exercises and sometimes so, someone else will like stand up and join me and like stretch a bit and be like, this is a good idea. And I'm like, yes, it is. It's good for you. When you're talking about stretching, um, I don't know if you've seen the book. It's called Presence by Amy Cuddy. She has the most watched uh, video on TED Talks about she does the starfish or the Wonder Woman pose oh, and yeah. how that's really oh, yeah. yeah how that's really good for you. And she's written a book called Presence, um, which is undertitled Bringing Your Boldest Self to Your Biggest Challenges. It's an absolutely fabulous book and it's not based on supposition or, oh, I think this or I think that. Everything is backed up with proper scientific studies. One of the things she says is about um, when you're in your office, put your mouse a bit further away or your cup of tea a bit further away, which makes you stress, stretch. And the more you stretch and the bigger you make yourself, the better that is for your um, self-esteem and self-confidence. It's a really good book. Oh, amazing. Oh, that sounds really good. Basically, you watch the, the premise of the book is your posture affects how you feel about yourself. Mm. So the more bigger you are, the more you sit up straight and push your shoulders back and all all of that affects your well-being and your self-esteem and your self-confidence. It is absolutely fantastic. That's fantastic. I like that. That is amazing. Mm. I've, I'm thinking now of um, my dancing. Um, 
little hobby that I do. Yeah. Um, as I slash other career. <laughs> <laughs> Professional dancer. Um, it, so it's ballet dancing, and one of the 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 main things I'm I've I'm not a dancer other than a belly dancer. I've, I've been doing it ten years, uh, over ten years, but I didn't ever do any other dance. So I've done a lot of work on my dance posture, and dance posture is something that's very often covered in um, higher level belly dance classes. And there are often times at the beginning of classes where you would when you will take a good ten minute to work on your posture and just. Stand right, and I have found I am much more confident in my dancing when I when I sort of focus on um, switching all of that on. And I know that's probably it has a lot to do with professionalism and confidence in uh, my ability as a dancer. But I'm really interested in what you're saying about general sort of underlying confidence as well. It's interesting, is because in Amy's book she says to, if if you are working with somebody else in an office situation or a bench, is to have a buddy in every sort of five minutes or so or sort of every 15 minutes or so check in with your buddy so your buddy says oh you know you're starting to slump again because we all fall back into our our habits don't we um around our shoulders and slump and whatever we do in terms of bad habits to affect our posture so it's really good if you do work with somebody to have somebody every I don't know, 20 minutes, hour, whatever is best, just say, I mean, slumped a bit again. Well, I really liked that idea. That's a really nice idea. Yeah, I think that's, it's. A, I think if, if more people were to take that up, it would be a nice self-care, but also caring for others. Brothers, um, yeah. element if you do work with another person in a lab or studio well that's the thing i mean looking after your conservatory that can be looking after your colleagues uh, and it can be them looking after you you know it, sometimes this is a team exercise <laughs> just to remind yourselves i think that's especially true with things like tea and coffee breaks i know that i keep going mm. on about this but this is because i'm swedish and i'm gonna explain <laughs> why uh, this is actually something that Janet from our last episode brought up that they're now doing Swe- Swedish fika in the, their office. And basically what this is, in Sweden it's practically mandatory uh, <laughs> to have a coffee break in the morning and then afternoon. And these are called fika. It's when you have tea and tea or coffee or whatever you want to drink. And normally it's a biscuit or, or something to nibble on, right? And this mm. is so ingrained in our culture that it's unthinkable to not have these breaks. They are mandatory and they are social engagement times. So they are, they are times when you sit together as a, it can be a family or as uh, colleagues and you all have a break together. There's none of this, oh, I'll just finish this. No, no, you're putting it down now. We're all going. The kettle's on. Yeah. What are you doing? <laughs> and I find that this doesn't exist so much here in the UK. And... I feel like it ought to, actually, because people are terrible at taking breaks. That's something I've taken away from a lot of workplaces I've been to, even if I've just visited them. It almost takes a special occasion, like, oh, it's someone's birthday, or uh, oh, we have a special visitor today, for anyone to go away from their bench or their desk and actually take a break. Because, yeah, you can drink your coffee at your at, with your laptop at your desk. Actually, that's not good for you. That's not a break. That's you... That's no. you inhaling a liquid whilst you're answering your emails. <laughs> that is not good for you. So actually, I think there's something to be said for having a proper break, making it a social occasion. I know that people think this is bullshit, but if you have proper breaks, you are more productive in between those breaks than if you just power through your entire day. I definitely yeah. see that in myself. Mm. Definitely. Yeah, I completely agree with you. It's very important to get away from your desk, your bench, whatever, and just 
have a 10 or 15 minute break or longer if that's what you need because when you go back you are far more productive yeah and it's not just about productivity it makes you feel better mm, helps exactly. you feel better exactly and if that benefits you know everyone's happiness as an as a team how are we not doing this how is this something that's mm. so optional it's it, it baffles me because it's it's so good for your well-being so people introduce swedish fika if you can as an office tradition <laughs> try to you know even if it's just you you should still do it it doesn't have to be a biscuit yeah. it doesn't have to be something decadent but you know have <laughs> can a, it, have, be, it can be <laughs> have a liquid of your choice and a nibble of your choice have some grapes whatever makes you feel good that's also good for your blood sugar by the way uh if you have several little snacks throughout the day yeah just just take some time to have a mm. break uh, something we talked about already is there are different types of stress and that's true. This came up in the museum hour discussions that you face very different kinds of stress depending on where you are in your career. So if you're an emerging professional, that can be the unending job hunt and also trying to make your mark on and like be remembered and like stand out and kind of be a brand, really, because it's, that's kind of where modern society has gone, that we kind of need to be uh, almost our own brand. And then that also ties into being unemployed because that's you know very difficult if it's uh if you're looking for new jobs that can be very hard but it's there's a different kind of stress that exists in the kind of permanent luckily staff member as well because there tends to be a lot of this attitude of make do and mend and well we have to keep the museum open even though we're having budget cuts so you're just going to do three pe people's jobs now rather than your own job and there's a lot of that sort of stress going on as well and i don't think that's the recognition from necessarily management staff for example that th that these different groups have different types of stress and that they are all very serious. You've also got people who are freelancers and yeah. we are now making up the more of the majority. In fact, I think we are now the majority of conservators in the UK. The majority are self-employed. So you have the stresses of being quite often a lone worker. Then you have issues around cash flow because that can be awful. I mean, oh, I can yeah. be three or three months behind in getting paid by clients. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the stress of finding or thinking about, oh, crikey, you know, when I finish this job, I've got no jobs lined up. What am I going to do? Yeah. Or two coming in at the same time and you work on your own and you've got three months worth of work to do in two months. Yeah, precisely. So there are loads of different types of stress levels that I think we all need to recognise are there and we need to perhaps stop being so stiff up a lip again mm. about it and be less well, mm -hmm. I can't complain because I, I'm so lucky to have a have a job that I can't possibly complain about the fact that they've cut the two other conservative posts and I now do three jobs. No, you are definitely allowed to not think that's okay. And you need to take care of yourself. So mm. it's you before work, actually, because, you know, it is. Yeah, you're important. I was thinking about this this morning about asking for help, how we do soldier on um, and we pretend that we can do particular jobs. Somebody might ask you to do something. You've never done it before. You don't know where to start. You don't know where to get the information from. And most of us, I think, are very guilty of not asking for help and saying, well, actually, I've never done this before. Can you give me some guidance on that? Yeah, I think there is there's certainly a problem in um, conservation in museums. Actually, I'd be interested to hear what it's if there's a sort of similarity in this sort of respect in freelance conservation with there being um, a lot of core work that needs to be done all the time, just maintenance. Mm -hmm. There's that level. And then there's obviously 
programs like exhibitions and loans and stuff but then there's also sorting of historic problems and Mm. let's improve the store and you know conservation is developing all the time all of our processes now are better than they were and hopefully in the future all of our processes then will be better than they are now but if we don't have the staffing then we can't go and make those improvements we just have to know about those improvements and feel bad Mm. about how our for example stores or displays or environmental monitoring systems are but if we don't have time to do that work then we're not getting through any of the the stuff that we need to do and I I feel like there is an element in conservation of the profession is watching you if you have you if you have it's not just professional pride because we all we always do things to the best of our ability and we always do things to the to best practice that we can manage but there's there's an element that I think maybe other staff members in museums don't understand which is we have to do this right or I have to do this right I have to achieve this to a certain level because if another conservator comes in and sees this in a state that is not peak or desirable or whatever then that's my professional life on the line really and that you you have to maintain everything and that I think is it's a pressure that isn't not talked about but I don't think it's appreciated Um, to the extent that it might affect others and obviously that's a really good point we obviously like you said we should always do our best we should always aim for the the highest standard because you know we're conservatives we're supposed to do a good job oh at the same time we have to remember that we're human Mm. right and how often Mm. have we talked to how often have we visited conservatives either that we are friends with socially or went to university with or just a meeting for the first time you go into the store and they go sorry it's shit yeah no every (laughs) time yeah I I don't think I've ever been into a store where there hasn't been a problem even a brand new store yeah it's it is a good point and you know that's it's managing your own expectations which we're not very good at I think and we we try to manage other people's expectations all the time but what do we do about our own so it's looking after. you know we're talking today about looking after your conservator Mm. and not only just looking after ourselves but other people, our managers, our line managers, people we work with looking after us and looking after them. So this is a collaborative thing. This is conservators that need to be more supportive of one another. Mm. And actually having a conversation about these sorts of things. Which we are having. So that's nice. Yeah, pretending pretending they don't happen. I mean, the amount of stores that I go into now, because I I go into a variety of different institutions. I work mainly for institutions. Mm. And like I say, the perfect store doesn't exist. But do we talk about that? Do we do we actually rather as a as a profession, do we talk about that or do we pretend that everything is fine? When you go to conferences, people always talk about the conservation of the Van Gogh, um, the Leonardo. They don't talk about, oh, I've been working on so and so's granddad's birth certificate, the yeah. less important mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. And we don't talk about when things go wrong. No. And um, there that's seems true. to be this conspiracy that every treatment that we ever do always works and actually I think you learn more when things go wrong than when they constantly go right and I've always always wanted to organize a conference called wish I hadn't done that <laughs> oh, oh, oh please do can we make that happen can we come oh. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. I love that idea. I think, and that's quite similar to. I've always um, thought it would be a really good, really, really 
great and hilarious episode topic called C is for compromise <laughs> because we just oh, but the problem work. is we'd have to be so brutally honest and I don't think the profession is there yet yeah. and I think we, we unless it's completely anonymous stories in which yeah, maybe it might. could be yeah yeah but yeah yeah so we're going back to that thing of hiding because what are we scared of we're scared of other people being judgmental yeah and we yeah. should we should be able to be open and honest yeah absolutely um I thought I'd throw in another buzzword and that buzzword is mindfulness i'm going to read out what the definition of mindfulness is according to mind which is the same charity i got the uh, mental well-being definition from mindfulness is a technique which can help people manage their mental health or simply gain more enjoyment from life it involves making a special effort to give you full attention to what's happening in the present moment in your body your mind or your surroundings for example in a non-judgmental way Mindfulness describes a way of approaching our thoughts and feelings so that we become more aware of them and react differently to them. So actually, I see it as stop trying to multitask. Just kind of hone in on what you're doing now. It can be what you're doing. It can be what you're feeling. And it is proven that this actually helps you if you stop trying to do five billion things at once, which I'm really bad at. I love multitasking. I love trying to do five things at once. So I find it very difficult to sit down and go, Ashley... Maybe I should just focus on this thing. Because actually I enjoy my work more if I do that. There's nothing better than focusing on one single thing for a bit. That one object. That one little area. That's beautiful, isn't it? That's that's true happiness, isn't it? <laughs> and yet I don't do that. I don't allow myself to do that. Mindfulness is a technique. is not something that I've ever really found works for me. Mm. But the only time that I think it does is via movement so walking dancing running that sort of thing mm. however I do think there are moments where you are very mindful when you're working for example one of the repetitive jobs that I do or a job that becomes repetitive is surface cleaning so when you're cleaning um, the surface dirt off paper and you've got 60 objects to do you do one and then you do number two and then you do number three by the time you've got to number 15 it's actually become quite meditative and yeah. therefore mindful Yes, exactly. No, I know exactly the state of mind that you mean, and it's wonderful. So, actually, so there are moments in the studio when you work that become quite mindful, just naturally because of the type of work that you're doing. Maybe mindfulness is built into conservation and we just forget about it. I think it also means different things to different people as well. I think. Oh, yeah. I've been to one, I think I'm quite far away from mindfulness as a, as a specific technique, generally. Um and I went to one uh, meditation lesson, lesson, session, class, class yeah. yeah. And I think I, I could sort of see the benefits in as we were going. I thought, OK, so I see where this is going, but I found it very, very difficult. It's interesting that you say that because meditation does not work for me. Does it not? No, because I, I, I found it difficult to go quiet. <laughs> no no outwardly no 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 outwardly uh i just mean that inside i always i keep talking to myself and uh, if there's any spare time and obviously because it's not spare time you should be doing the meditation that's why you're there <laughs> but somehow my brain just goes mm, quiet time let's make some lists for tomorrow no no let's not do that let's and then yeah i wonder so, if i'm doing it right is this what i should oh now i'm thinking about that oh no no i should okay maybe i could count yes what am i counting about oh have, am i at eight or am i at ten? What did she just say? <laughs> oh, I'm doing it, definitely doing it wrong. Yeah. Oh, the washing machine is finished. I think <laughs> I've done the work. <laughs> yes. So I think maybe you and I aren't ideally suited to meditation as such. <clears throat> maybe um, we should try. Maybe we should, maybe we should try should again. We challenge us, maybe we should try month? again. 
We should try and again. And in some time. Let's see if we You're can... looking at me like, don't say this. <laughs> We're not doing it. No, Maybe no, go we ahead. Try. I'm open. I'm open to the challenge. Should we have a challenge? Okay, we'll have a challenge. We'll <laughs> have a go. What What is the commitment bit to this? Should we have to take a selfie? <laughs> I think maybe that would take you out at the moment. <laughs> well, yeah, before we start, or like, <laughs> before and after, frazzled, calm, frazzled, calm. <laughs> I think maybe we should do one month okay. where we try and do meditation twice a week. Can it be May? <laughs> I mean, this, is, this episode not... is out in May, so it's fine. I'm just saying, I don't have time in April. I don't have time in April. See, this is the problem. <laughs> And this is yeah, why it be, mate. It I need be, mate. to take care of myself. <laughs> Would you like to join us, Lorraine? <laughs> meditation. I do meditate. Do you? I, mean, I, like, yeah, I like the fact that meditation has changed, whereas it, when I first started, it was quite rigid in that it was empty the mind, don't let anything wander in. Yeah. Now it's, if things wander in, just watch them wander in and then watch them wander out again. And if you are sitting there going, right, okay, well, I need to get some bread. When I get the brand, I don't know what brand they have in the shop now. I wonder if they have that brand. I think I might make some nice toast for that. Well, I don't know. If that's what the conversation is that you have in your head, if you just watch that conversation and then you go, oh, you know, my, I'm thinking about toast and bread and going to Sainsbury's and the list of things that I need. And just, just try and push that to one side and then let your mind focus on the moment and then something else will wander in and you'll be thinking about um, how many birds there might be outside or the fact that somebody's going past with a noisy car engine, but you just let that go in and wander around again. And I find that, because I only do a 10-minute meditation, I don't do a long meditation, that it takes about seven minutes of that wandering in, and then the last three minutes are just glorious. Oh, wow. Do you use an app? I'm, I'm just searching meditation apps at the moment. Headspace, that was it. Um, have you heard I of that one? I have heard that Headspace is fantastic. Okay. Um, mm. Well, you can tell that we're technology that, I mean, people because we immediately started looking at apps for <clears throat> Yeah, sorry. Well, I mean, it, it, it's something how, that... How did you get started with this, Lorraine? Out of curiosity. Out of curiosity, yeah. I had depression because of work in 1998. I had a very serious depression. Yeah. And where I worked had a Buddhist group. And I used to join the Buddhist group for meditation. Oh, that sounds amazing. And I found it absolutely fabulous. I found no benefit on the day that I did it. The next day, absolutely amazing. Wow. Felt completely different. That's so cool. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That's amazing. That's such a fantastic idea as well. Yeah. Mm. Which is why well-being, this whole conversation is really important to me about well-being because yeah. since the depression, it was the worst thing that ever happened to me, but also the best thing that ever happened to me. And I've always been very interested in self-esteem, self-confidence, um, well-being, resilience, all the, the new buzzwords. And I've done quite a lot of reading and research on the subject as well. I wouldn't wish a depression on anybody, but it was the best thing that happened. You know, I not not to overshare, but um, having come from that background as well, I'm sometimes firmly of the belief that sometimes completely breaking is actually good because you can actually mend yourself mm. again, which sounds traumatic perhaps especially as a conservator you need to smash it so you can rebuild it um <laughs> but actually it's not the end of the world and you can come back stronger and it's so important mm -hmm. uh and i've had depression and anxiety problems in the past and i feel like i don't have them now i have different issues now different and new issues but uh, i do feel like i'm better off for it because i learned so much about myself and how i can i can cope uh, with, mm -hmm. with those different things mm -hmm. it's an important point that you make though about having depression and, and 
coming out the other side of it, breaking and getting better or breaking and that being a good thing to break. Because if there is anybody listening to the podcast who is going through a really bad time at the moment, it might be helpful for them to know that actually, I know it's a cliche, but there is light at the end of the tunnel and things can be even better when you get there. They definitely can. Definitely. I mean, I... It sounds weird, but I wouldn't go back to my pre-depression state that, you know, that's, mm. no, that wasn't as good. Like what I am now is amazing. I'm pretty amazing mm. and you're pretty amazing. So, you know, come on, we can do this. We can do this. Yeah. We're all amazing. Yes, fantastic. We We're fantastic. Go you see, you. everybody gets embarrassed. You see, you say good things about one another and people laugh and giggle and, and feel a bit embarrassed. But it's what we should be doing more. It is my favorite thing to embarrass people with at work, which is... Uh... <laughs> No, it is because I, I've built this in and I always say it when I honestly mean it, but I do mean it often. And that's the thing. Uh, I will just rock up to someone and go, you are amazing. And then like you, you rock. And, you know, I just tell them because I think they should know. And it's we're not good at telling each other. I absolutely, I absolutely agree with that. I think it's something that I've noticed in my current job is that we're both, I work in a two person team and we both just we're both just I think we're just nice people to each other and we kind we compliment each other a lot um and and other people other colleagues who come in and see us working together they they've commented in the past like this is a really lovely working environment because you build each other up all the time and also and also just to go back to the mental health aspect it's okay and it's encouraged to talk mental health at work and that also came up during that museum hour it's important to address and it's it's okay you'd be surprised if you Maybe if you start having the conversation that oh, I'm being very, I'm very anxious or, you know, I've dealt with a depression in the past, you might find that other people that you never expected will come up to you and say, oh, my God, I can't believe you said that because I had that same problem five years ago. Or, oh, my God, I'm so glad you said I'm having a rough patch. It might actually be yeah. that you're really helping someone just by opening yeah. up. It's really important to tell other people or speak about how you're feeling because from the outside, it might be looking like you're having a really good day, you love the job, everything's really great. But actually, underneath all of that, you're really struggling to cope. If you don't tell people that you are struggling, then they might not see it. So if you're feeling brave enough to be able to say, do you know what? I've been really struggling for the last three months for X, Y and Z reasons. That's a really good thing. Because as you say, you'll probably then find somebody else says, do you know what? I have too. Or, or five years ago, I had this problem or that problem. Let's talk about it. But if people don't know, they can't talk to you. So we've talked about some pretty heavy stuff. I thought we would talk about some ways of maybe coping with stress and that sort of thing. There are some really general advice that can help improve your well-being. And they are really basic things like make sure you get enough sleep. If you have a problem with your sleep, address it with your doctor. Because getting a, a really good night's sleep is actually super vital to your well-being. And things can be fixed. For a long time, I struggled with sleep. And it was at the point where I kept passing out at work, where I went went and asked for help because I couldn't understand why I kept passing out. Uh, and they tried everything. And eventually we did a sleep study. And it turned out that I had severe restless leg syndrome. And it meant that I never got a deep sleep. And you know what? With a couple of tweaks of medication and taking iron pills, for example, it all got so much better. But I needed to ask for the help right we needed to figure out the problem i needed to recognize that it was a problem and it took me a long time to get there but sleep is really really important so if you have trouble with your sleep ask your doctor it might not be that you have to take pills it could be something really easy that you you can do but it's super important sleep is good 
uh, eating things that are good for you is i mean it sounds really self-evident but if you eat crap all the time that is not actually good for you in the long term it doesn't fuel your brain the same way and ultimately it won't give you as much energy that's, that's not to say you can't have treats of course you can eat rubbish things sometimes we're gonna eat pizza after this i'm gonna be <laughs> honest with you but that's my treat that is so good. it's not my standard meal so it can be just little things like fi- figuring out what fuels you best because it does vary from person to person be active we we've already talked about things like uh i mean you can do anything from yoga to going going for a run like lorraine does being active really helps it can be taking a walk with the last bit of your lunch break like you've had your lunch let's just go for a quick walk around the building even that can really improve your well-being and help release various chemicals in your brain that really help you feel better and then be gentle on yourself try not to punish yourself too much you cannot be a superhuman all the time uh, it's about learning how to switch off uh, what learning what recharges you me it can be staring at birds or petting a stray cat uh, <laughs> if, you know it's kind of stopping and smelling the roses essentially uh, it can be turn your phone off when you get home so that you don't check your emails constantly and a big one is start saying no to things i know that we all want to be yes sayers because we want to be the problem solvers and we want to be the good team member who can always take on a bit extra but you have to also say no sometimes. And that can be a really, really hard one. And I'm rubbish at it. That's definitely mm-hmm. one for me to improve. So I'm just saying, I'm not good at these things, but I can strive to be better. I am rubbish at these things and I can be better. And so can you. I read a really good book about saying no. It's quite an old book now. It's called The Curse of Lovely. Oh. How to Break Free from the Demands of Others and Learn to Say No. Really good book, really enjoyed it. I particularly liked her personal bill of rights, which includes I have the right to say no. Oh, I like the <laughs> I really like that. That's something that I find very difficult personally. Yeah. Um, and it's also outside of work because you have to build in time to look after you. I mean, yes, so yes, mm. the things that you love doing, of course, but at the same time, you have to consider maybe what you're sacrificing do everything to have a balance basically how is that with freelance work Lorraine is that where I'm imagining work and life is slightly less defined in that respect how do how do you manage that it is less defined because my studio is in my property so you never fully get away from it although I can shut the door on it and walk away I've become much better at saying no and as a freelancer you do get quite a few time wasters and I've become much better at identifying the time wasters and saying no to them very quickly. That's good. But there's only a finite amount of time in the day. And like you say, you've got to make time for yourself. You can't be constantly working. Somebody once said to me, you're a human being, not a human doing. <laughs> oh, I like oh, that. I like that. Yeah. Right. Um, I thought we'd talk a little bit about burnout now, which is a big, scary word. And for that, we've got an interview with Dr. Michelle Hughes Thomas, who we'll listen to now. So today I'm here with Dr. Michelle Hughes Thomas, and we're going to have a little chat about burnout. Michelle, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, um, my background is I'm, I'm a PhD in psychology. My background is that I've got a 30 year experience of working with people with mental health issues as a mental health nurse, but I'm also a psychologist. Um, and for the last 14 years, I've been working in academia. I've been working as a lecturer in psychology and in mental health. But at the same time, I've had my own practice in psychology where I've been 
um, helping people overcome the after effects of burnout, whether that's through workplace stress or workplace stress in conjunction with personal challenges. Um, so I've got, you know, I've got a fair amount of experience really in in understanding this phenomena. So maybe we should start out, what is burnout? It's a term that's thrown about a lot, but what is it and why should we take it seriously? I think we need to go back a step and think about, before we think about burnout, think about stress, because burnout is often the effect of prolonged stress. And stress can be healthy, and we all experience stress in our daily lives. And there are individual differences for the way each of us experience stress. Burnout, however is that one step further, which is often termed like a psychological breakdown, mm-hmm. where the stressors in one's life are insurmountable. They've gone over, past and beyond the point of coping. And it's often very insidious. It's a drip-drip effect. So we often don't recognise the signs in ourselves. And burnout is, I mean, if we were to encapsulate it and describe it, it's kind of a loose term for emotion exhaustion, depersonalization, withdrawal, and it mimics depression because depression is often like that as well. Mm. I think we are now, I think the medical community are recognizing it sort of more as a, a, a more medic, in a more medicalized way. Mm. But it's taking time for us to reach that point because often it's been seen of, oh, well, you know, you're a little bit stressed, you're overstressed, you're having a bit of a breakdown, you need time. And in ICD-10, the International Classification of Diseases, Mm -hmm. is the equivalent of DSM in America. And DSM-11, which is coming out, I think it's this year or next year, they will recognise burnout as a vital, it's it's going to be labelled vital exhaustion. Mm -hmm. And they're going to categorise it as a condition which is, you know, about the deterioration in everyday anxieties and stresses which undermine one's mental and physical health. And I think that's a way forward. Yeah. And even, you know, some people are against diagnosis, you know, because they can be labelling. I think it's really helpful to have something that, you know, that that, that is recognised because it is very pervasive, it's very insidious. And as I talk about, it leads to really detrimental mental and physical health effects. So the fact is becoming recognised now in the medical community is welcome. What are some of the warning signs of what we now term burnout? I think the warning signs are, I mean, they creep up often, you know, without warning. They, they sort of manifest themselves without a person being even, you know, sort of consciously aware of them. Um, and I'll just go through them that I jotted down in terms of the warning signs that are based empirically. So that means that these have been evidenced in research literature, but they're also warning signs that I've recognised within my own colleagues or within my students or within my, you know, or sometimes within myself even. And the warning signs in terms of, I've broken them down in terms of behavioural, psychological, emotional and physical. And in terms of behavioural, one of the warning signs is not being able to cope, you know, sort of being aware that you're not really coping with the extra demands or the tasks that you have to do. It seems like everything seems insurmountable. Yeah. And you find yourself working late, working weekends, working long hours to compensate for what is an, often an impossible task. And I think as well, the, the warning signs as well, behaviourally, are not setting our own boundaries. So 
we tend to drip into the eight o'clock emails at night. We tend to stay behind at work or we tend to go in at half past seven instead of nine o'clock. And then not having one's morale being reduced. So, you know, people might say to you, you don't look yourself or you seem a bit edgy these days. And that means that, you know, that lower morale means that our personalities can almost change in the sense that we start criticising people. We start a little hostile. We start taking things a bit too personally and we might become hypersensitive. I think in terms of thinking patterns, these are really kind of insidious because we can often think very negatively. We can think black and white, you know, catastrophize, all or nothing thinking, as we call it. Everything's going to be so bad. I'm never going to do this job good enough. People are going to think I'm a failure in work. So those what we call self-defeating thoughts feed into our low mood and our morale that can lead to a really strong feeling of inadequacy. And then, of course, we've got the physical symptoms, which can often be the most most detrimental. And that's sleep disturbance, mood changes, uh, back pain. People have what's known as chronic fatigue. They get aching joints, digestive problems, irritable bowel. And I think what's really poignant is the, the literature. And there's been some really robust studies done in the field of cardiovascular medicine. And these are over the last decade, there's been... A direct link between stress and increased link in poor immune system, increased risk of heart, increased increased heart rate. So increased heart rate, which is called tachycardia in the medical field, leads to increased predisposition to heart attacks and strokes and type two diabetes. And these are the really serious, big, serious chronic conditions. There's also been neurological studies has shown that with, with an increased stress response, because of the neurochemicals, our brains function differently. So it causes what we call shrinkage of cells in the cortex, in the brain cortex. So now we're finding that chronic stress affects areas of the brain which are necessary for protecting our stress response. I think that organisation employers can no longer now ignore the detrimental impact on stress on well-being. Yeah, no, I, that's that's a good list of warning signs, and we we will also post some links to uh, related resources that people can go and look at themselves in case they they want to read up more about this. So I think I guess the the question is obviously this, these are really serious things. What are some of the ways we can avoid this? How can we reduce the stress in our lives and maybe avoid some of these problems? I think in terms of I'll come to the personal individual responsibility in a moment. In terms of organisations, I think organisations have a responsibility to to treat people fairly and to ensure, because factors that really, really precipitate overload and burnout are like things like having no autonomy, um, feeling undervalued, you know, insufficient reward, you know, having a values conflict. So a person having strong values towards, like a nurse having strong values towards their patients, but the organisation not putting the resources in place to enable that for him him or her to do their job. And so I think there's a lot that organisations can do in terms of culture, in terms of, um, you know, expectations and about fairness. But I think in terms of individual responsibility, we all cope differently with our our stresses, mm. and some of us have intrinsically we have intrinsic ways of dealing with coping. Some of us are more what we call emotion coping. Um, some of us are more action copers. But generally, 
I think the general consensus is that, you know, it's about well-being, looking after ourselves. And that is about getting proper rest, eating well, taking sufficient exercise, whether that's having a little walk, you know, using a monitor to have, you know, do a couple of thousand steps each day. It's about seeking support from loved ones or from colleagues. And it's about recognising that whilst we're in work, we need to protect ourselves. So it's about taking recognised breaks, taking lunch breaks. When, you know, when people experience burnout to the point when they're getting so anxious and depressed, it's about recognising those triggers and seeking help at the right time from the GP or from your healthcare practitioner and not letting things get so out of hand because people end up in hospital. Because, you know, when you think of the continuum of burnout, You've got people who become so burnt out, they end up physically so ill, they end up in hospital, either with a, you know, a a crisis or physical, you know, a physical health complaint. Um, On the other side of the scale, they they might be just coping with anxiety and just, you know, dealing with it on a day by day basis. Even on that continuum, each mark on that continuum, each path is unpleasant, isn't it? Yeah. Even if you're having some sleepless nights and worrying and ruminating, that's pretty unpleasant. Raising those early red flag warnings to line managers, you know, looking to seek a way of dealing with distress, dealing with that negative feeling rather than just keep going on and keep going on and trying to cope. And that's very hard to do because of stigma. And to say to your your line manager, I'm not coping, Mm. you know, it's because we all like to think that we cope and we hardworking, we get on with our jobs, we do the best for our students or our staff or our patients. But yeah, it's about maintaining boundaries and evaluating our options with the significant people that we work with. I guess it's about being realistic and honest with yourself. Just you've got to recognise that actually, I probably can't achieve this impossible to do list today. And it can be something small, small like that just to say, well, you know what, it's okay if I achieve one thing today. That's champion. Say that we do suffer from a lot of stress and we may have had to have time off work. How can we bounce back after that amount of stress? How can we regenerate ourselves a little bit? Um, I think, you know, as human beings, we are generally resilient. We tend to be able to cope well, you know, and I think we do, you know, there is always hope and we do bounce back. Um And some people bounce back with practicing the techniques that I mentioned before, like, you know, looking after oneself, seeking counseling, talking. I think for those people who um, are suffering more extreme burnout, then it's about recognizing the triggers within themselves, whether that's accessing a healthcare professional and doing some education around, you know, one's own vulnerabilities and triggers, doing like a little diary, if you like, about how much sleep I had last night, how did I feel today, what thoughts in my mind, um, you know, like a little personal journal. It's almost like a self-monitoring of oneself, you know. I think talking as well, because what when we talk to counsellors or each other, we, we almost process our own thinking and our own emotions, and it rewires our brain. It's really healing, you know. And we can reappraise situations that, you know, perhaps in the past have made us feel a little off key or, you know, we've reacted to to things. And we can almost take a personal responsibility for that, for owning our own vulnerabilities and our own thoughts and looking at ways of, well, how can I deal with that 
in the future, if it does crop up, how can I cope better? So it's almost like brainstorming what didn't work for you in the past. And I do this all the time, you know, as part of my own well-being. And how can I deal with that in the future to stop me feeling sad or to stop me feeling cross or irritated or hypersensitive? And some people may even need, you know, to go for to well-being services and seek, say, a short course of cognitive behavioural therapy or personal counselling. And I think as well, anxiety management is really powerful, whether it's through mindfulness apps or books. I'm a real firm believer in, you know, sitting still, living with the moments and coping with our anxiety through whether that's through meditation or through breathing exercises or through mindfulness. Each to each, you know, we're all very different. I enjoy mindfulness and it helps me at the end of the day. I only do it for five minutes at the end of the day. It helps me turn the volume down about my thoughts about the day. And so I find that really helpful. And I think, and again, the empirical literature, the evidence for mindfulness on anxiety is powerful. And I think it can help to put this into context. Um, about eight years ago, I, I got senior promotion and I experienced burnouts and I experienced it in all the ways I've discussed today. And my burnout was secondary to um, a role being huge. I was, you know, the task was too big for me to achieve in, in a 37 hour week. Um, and because of my inherent personality of, you know, wanting to achieve and, and to support my students and to support staff, I put myself in a situation where I was working in incredibly over and above what I, you know, I need to do for my well-being. And I recognised after a year, I recognised the impact on me. And I, I made the extreme decision and I left the job and went into another job. Now, that's extreme, okay? But it was the case of I recognised how it felt and what, and it was very, very unpleasant. And looking back, I wish I'd gone for help sooner. I wish I'd gone to the, to the, you know, the well-being support centre sooner, but I tried to cope with it on my own. And the lesson learned for me now is not to cope on my own, to leave it go that far. When I leave my job and go for another job, it's just sort of looking at the triggers and thinking, hang on a minute, you know, I need help here. So, yeah. Oh, thank you so much for sharing, Michelle. Yeah, you're welcome. Basically, if I look at that list, I kind of feel like I've got quite a few of those. Yeah, I was just thinking that I could put an asterisk next to quite a number. Yeah, I mean, and it, you know, basically, if any of you people listening found that any of the things mentioned in that list, that you take quite a few of the boxes, then just take that on board and think, okay, these are warning signs. I should change something. And that can be some of the little things that we've already mentioned really need to address this and take our well-being seriously not just us personally but we still need it to be a good workplace environment we still need managers to take it seriously spot the signs in your mm -hmm. uh, in your underlings and make sure that you're there for them and that you can offer them alternatives you you got to look after the people that you work with and, yeah and i think it's an important point you make about the mental well-being of a person and how that affects their physical health you know digestive problems headaches migraines back pains 
you know, shoulder pain, something completely unrelated. I mean, you- uh, there are many ways that this can manifest. And so, some of the ones that you mentioned are, you know, very, very common. I did a claw leadership short course um, a oh, few amazing. years ago. And at the end of one of the sessions, um, when, when we'd finished the two weeks and we were having like a tidy up session where... Uh, we were talking about what we'd learn and taking those lessons away with this. Um, the lady who was leading that day gave us all a little pretty bag with a battery inside. And the and I now have that pinned up on my desk, which is to remind us we need to recharge our batteries. Oh, that, I love that. Yeah, yeah, so it's just a little battery in a little pretty bag that I look at the battery and I think, do you know what? I will go out for a walk at lunchtime. That's fantastic. I love That's that. That's a really nice little thing. Yeah. Something that a listener actually wanted us to cover as well, because I tweeted about burnout, uh, was the concept of rust out, which I'd never come across before. I've never heard of that. So I had to go and look at what rust out was. Rust out is the term occupational psychologists give to symptoms arising from jobs that leave people feeling apathetic, disinterested and dull. So it's kind of the opposite of burnout in that your job is so monotonous and uninspiring and there's no stimulation whatsoever from your job that it becomes a stress so that's the idea behind rust out it's like it's kind of if you have mind-numbing and repetitive jobs Mm -hmm. and some things Mm -hmm. that conservatives do can be and i think Mm -hmm. not just in terms of bench work if you do preventative conservation it can be that and there's like no CPD opportunities or maybe no real engagement from other staff members or from management level. I, I could totally see how rust out would be a thing that you're just kind of stuck in a rut doing the same thing every day, feeling really terrible about it. And ultimately, it means that, um, you know, the product productivity goes down and, you know, you, you're not enjoying your job. And we're not, of course, just like we said at the beginning, well-being isn't about being happy all the time and you don't have to have a good day at your job every day there are certainly days when none of us like our jobs but there are they should be days they shouldn't be constant so that's just one of those things to also be aware of that aside from burnout rust out exists and i feel like there are many ways that you could get around that you could have conversations with your managers about look i'm really feeling this isn't doing it for me can we change something uh, so it might be that you just that it might be that you need to be proactive in that case and say this is really getting me down or it's really stressing me out or that I'm just not that I'm doing the same thing all the time. It's it's so it's worth having that conversation. And again, I suppose it ties into talking about mental health at work. I wonder if that's um, something that affects emerging professionals more than any others, particularly because they go for the project work, the three month, the six month project, which might be cleaning a library or dusting books that's or a good point actually mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah that's true and so they, they're doing the same same thing day in day out for six months because that what that's what they've got the fund that the people who are running the yeah. museum or or whatever have, have got the funding to do yeah like welcome to rehousing six thousand specimens of mollusk yeah mollusks <laughs> yes. yeah. in the same identical <laughs> box and with the same tissue paper <laughs> enjoy yes yeah no i, I could totally see it <laughs> what about managers do they need help? What can we do for our managers? Yeah, some, yeah sometimes definitely. Managers. And something that came up during museum hour was that people really would like managers to have a little bit of mental health training, like just just spot the signs because not everyone's in tune with what the signs might be. Uh, so it could be that just kind of a really basic primer in these are the things to look for in the people that you manage that might suggest that they need a little bit of extra support. Or that you need to have a conversation with them because they might be in denial. (laughs) Yeah, basically, be good to your staff. 
if you can. <laughs> and yourself. Yes. yes, and yourself. And uh, now before we go, we're just going to dump a lot of resources in the show notes because there's so much we haven't covered and that we can't go into depth about. And there are so many wonderful resources, things like you can be a mental health first aider at work. So we can we can bring a link to that in there. There are projects like Joyful Museums and I think the Happy Museum, maybe. Uh, I'm really bad at remembering names, but definitely Joyful Museums. Joyful um, is Happy Museum is, yeah. Brilliant. Uh, so there And there's Museum Five a Day, which I only came across recently. So there are all these wonderful projects out there, uh, usually on Twitter, that uh, we're going to share with you. And speaking of projects that I've kind of started on Twitter, uh, we're now going to have an interview with Sam from Museum Wellness Network, which has uh, just recently launched uh, and has been extremely well received. So here's an interview. And today, since we're talking about well-being, I'm here with Sam. Sam, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Sam Jenkins. I founded the Museum Wellness Network and I work in Edinburgh for the National Museums of Scotland. So how come you actually started the Museum Wellness Network? How did that get going? Well, it was something I was thinking about for a few months at least. I I have anxiety and uh, I've struggled with it in relation to work before. And when it was getting really bad, I what I really wanted there to be was a network or a group of people I could talk to who understood not only about anxiety, but understood about museums and how the two could work together. And then it wasn't until I went to the Moving On Up conference uh, this year that I realised quite how many other people in the sector are also struggling with similar things. Um, There was a raise of hands of people who had experienced anxiety, depression, workplace stress, and it was the majority of the room. Wow. And that combined with the general feeling of the day that everyone can start these things themselves and everyone who started up the emerging museum professional networks and things like that are just normal people who wanted a network. Yeah. So I left going, well, I've wanted this for ages and why don't I start it? Yeah. And there you go, you could and you did. Yeah, and it, it grew, it sort of blew up overnight. It's wonderful. I have to say, I, I really, I'm really glad when I saw it pop up on Twitter for the first time, I was really glad to see it happen. So, you know, thank you for, for me, at, you know, at the, at the very least. And I'm sure loads of people feel the same way that they're really grateful it exists, if you see what I mean. I think it feels a really important function, actually. Yeah, I think obviously one of the big problems with mental illness and mental health and well-being is that people still don't really talk about it. Yeah. Um, and if there are these networks that will encourage people to just chat about it reveal what the how they're feeling then hopefully that can tear down some of the stigma and we can actually get make some progress and it also I think a lot what a lot of people want is a support network and you can't always it's it's not always easy to develop that in your job if you're nervous about saying oh this is making me anxious or I'm feeling a bit depressed or I'm really stressed this week if you think that that might impact on how your work how people in your work view you it can be quite isolating yeah. so I think networks on the internet where at least there's the option of slightly more where you can be anonymous <laughs> slightly more uh, I think it's it's just going to be a good thing 
Hopefully. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and that's what a support group is for, isn't it? So what sort of thing do you do as a network so far? Well, so far, we've been putting out uh, blogs on various issues and um, trying to raise talking points on Twitter for me to get people chatting. Yeah. Um, in the near future, I'm hoping to start setting up informal meetups, physical meetups, yeah. um, for people to actually find a support network in their area. So that's probably going to start in York because I'm down there for a week in May. So it seems like a good time. I have friends in York who I know will come. Yes. So it won't just be me sitting, <laughs> sitting around waiting. Then, of course, I'm based in Edinburgh. So I'm planning on doing one in Edinburgh quite soon after. Um, and hopefully I've got people who were interested in helping in, in various ways who contacted me through Twitter or email around the country. So hopefully they'll pick up doing this in their area and we can get some actual physical meetups going. That's fantastic. <laughs> that sounds good. I think there's something to be said for kind of companionship, if you see what I mean, because if, if you can kind of relate to how another person might feel, that's so helpful because it's not, like you say, it's not always easy talking in your workplace about how you feel. And sometimes, mm. even though people mean well, they might not be able to relate to what you're saying. Yeah, and I think it, it goes sort of the other way with friends as well. Um, I know when I when I was really struggling, it was quite difficult to talk to my friends about it because they don't quite understand how museums work. Because yeah. when you think of it, they're very weird institutions. They they're very, very stressed. <laughs> but from the outside, it all it's like a swan. From the outside, it all looks pretty and amazing. <laughs> and then no one sees us furiously paddling underneath <laughs> that's so such a good I comparison think, i love it <laughs> so yeah i, th I think um the, though you may have people may have friends who understand the mental health side of things they may not understand just how much your work can impact on it because to them we get to just play with objects all day or we get to wander around a museum yeah it's actually yeah, harder than that yeah I do get that sort of reaction like oh it must be very peaceful and I think this is the least peaceful place on earth sometimes you have no idea <laughs> why do you think it's important that we talk about well-being and mental health as museum professionals well I think well there's there's several large reasons but with a lot of museums trying to move forward with uh, their engagement with mental health and well-being um, we can't really have a a sector where we're trying to encourage the well-being of our visitors without actually paying attention to the well-being of our staff yeah um and i think that well there's a lot of factors to do with staff well-being um including that every everyone is so against it for the number of things they have to do and budgets are low and i think Without, if we don't start talking about it and if we don't acknowledge it, then the sector is just going to continue to try and push for more and more with less and less until eventually there's just a breaking point. And if the entire sector's staff just breaks at the same time, that would be very bad. Yes, definitely. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think it's it's important that as a sector we discuss staff well-being because otherwise we can't really help with visitor well-being and we won't be able to continue this. It's difficult for the sector as it is with all of the budget cuts, whilst at the same time we need to encourage more visitors and get more visitors in every every single year. And if we don't look after our staff, then what's the point yeah. almost? 
Yeah. You're not going to have people being able to put in all of the effort that they've been putting in so far. So visitor experience and impact will go down and objects will get neglected. And I think it just it all comes in a nice little bundle of look after your people. Look after your people because they're the ones who make the organization. Yeah, you can you can get money from funders as much as you want. and But if you've not got a, a staff that is well enough to be able to do the things, then the things aren't going to get done. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. So we've mentioned meetups, uh, but where do you hope the network goes from here? Honestly, I don't know. I hadn't really thought it through that much when I started it. I thought this network needs to exist. I will start it. And then it was more successful faster than I expected it to be. Yeah. So when that was happening, I was going, okay, yeah, local meetups. That's a great idea. Get people in touch face to face. And then that's as far as I've got. Of course, as we continue to grow, I think the the voice of people will continue to grow and maybe we can start doing more advocacy and working with the museums association or different various groups yeah. and associations to maybe advocate for more initiatives in work workplaces. Yeah, I think that would be nice. I, I think there's a real need for it, to be fair. So if people do want to get in touch with you or help you in any way, are you looking for contributions? Are you looking for helpers? Anything like that? Whatever to do um they can tweet us or they can email us the email is on our wordpress blog which is linked on our twitter everything is a nice little circle (laughs) we're always happy for contributions to the blog or we've had people such as the front of house museum group on twitter did a takeover Mm -hmm. and so if certain people if people wanted to uh, take over one day then happy for that to happen usually it's happened once we're happy for that to happen (laughs) yeah or they can people can contact me and to set up their own local meeting or if they've got other ideas of what the network can do yeah tell me (laughs) oh that's really good okay so uh, get in touch with sam people if you have any good ideas (laughs) oh well thanks very much sam for talking to us i wish you best of luck with the museum wellness network and we hope to see loads of good things from you thank you very much (laughs) Thanks very much to Sam for talking to us. Today I'm reviewing Objective Lessons, Self-Care for Museum Workers by Seema Rao, published in 2017. What I instantly loved about this book is that it actually speaks our language. The author knows what it's like working in a cultural institution, has a museum background, and that's actually a really huge deal for a book like this. I haven't read a lot of self-care books, but I have read a few, and they can vary from too generic, mentioning you know office spaces and cubicle landscapes that are common to many modern workers, but not necessarily us, to really specific advice, but not in the right way. For example, offering advice to new mums. This book is actively tailored for museum folks, and it really shows. Like many self-care books, this is for you to keep, use and fill in. It's not a book for your shelf, and it's not a book for your library. It's a tool that you should use. You expect it to fill out aspects of the book when prompted, uh, to promote self-reflection, and to get thoughts and feelings out of your head and onto paper. These can be questions about yourself or where you work, but it's all about sussing yourself out. You're getting to know yourself a little better, and what makes you recharge. The layout of this book is friendly and unassuming, 
even if you've never picked up a self-care book in your entire life, this will guide you through how they work and how you'll get the most out of it. You're encouraged to scribble, draw and write throughout this book. It's roughly split into three. Begin, which is an introduction both to self-care in general and to you as its reader and user. You, which is just as wonderfully introspective as it sounds. And you and work, which is tailored more towards your work-life balance situation. I really love how materials and objects found in our museums guide the reader through this book. I was going to tell you about the sort of prompts that you might encounter in this book, but each activity section is really unique and I feel like I'd ruin the magic if I read one out to you, so I'm actually not going to. Um, Instead, I'm going to tell you that each page spread uh, features an object or a material uh, with some context, or as the author puts it, an object label, and an exercise for you to reflect on. Unlike many of the self-care books I've read, this one doesn't rely on the author relating their experiences. This book isn't about what Seema has experienced in her life and how you can possibly empathise with that. This book is about you and it's what you make it. And it's actually both about and for you, which is personally what I quite like out of this sort of book. I mean, there's nothing wrong with books like I'm thinking of the self-care project where the author is actually uh, trying to relate to you by telling them how rubbish they are at self-care and what's helped them. There's nothing wrong with books like that because they're also really helpful. But this book is so much more for you to use. It's much more of a tool and it's got very little fluff in it, um, which is good. It kind of gets to the point straight away. If you'd like to give self-care a go, I really recommend trying this playful workbook. It contains 196 pages, most of which are for you to fill in yourself. And it contains a variety of cute black and white illustrations by the author. At the time of writing, you can get this book on Amazon UK for £11.20p. And we'll pop a link to it in the show notes. Thanks for listening. With Seaward, and you've been listening to Lorraine Finch, Chloe Rumsey and me, Jen Mathiasen. Join us next time for an episode about international friends. In the meantime, you can check out our website at theseawood.show, tweet us at theseawoodpodcast, or simply email us on theseawoodpodcast at gmail.com. Intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production.
just so you know, you are amazing. You can totally do this. I don't even know what the thing is, but you can do the thing. You can do the thing. Go you.